Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. The classic American farmer riding a tractor and wearing overalls is not necessarily who you think it is these days. Female farmers are the most rapidly growing segment of the farming population. There are more than one million women working on farms today and double the number of female-led farms than there were 30 years ago. These women grow $13 billion worth of produce a year. The book Woman Powered Farm by Audrey Levitino is the story of one woman who left her job teaching at a high school to start a farm in the heartland of Virginia. The book is a practical guide for starting a small farm and opening a small produce stand or taking over a family farm. Levitino lives in central Virginia near Charlottesville. She was a high school English teacher for seven years in Oakland, California. She always knew she wanted to have a vegetable garden when she finally owned her own home. I, I always knew that I wanted to have a kitchen garden when I finally did own my own home. But um, I guess what really kind of put the idea in my head was when uh, we bought this piece of land in Virginia and moved here uh, from Northern California. And when we got to Virginia, everything was just so green and lush and beautiful and things liked to grow here. And I, I just, uh, when I started my, my little kitchen garden, it just kept expanding and I, I kept trying new things and, and doing more with it. And uh, it became um, just something that I really enjoyed doing and loved being out there. Um, so as, you know, I did get a job teaching when we first moved to Virginia, but it got harder and harder to spend all my time all that time indoors and be away from my farm and my land and my animals. Um, so um, eventually I, I kind of kept thinking about it and decided that I wanted to try um, making a little business out of the farm and, and uh, growing cut flowers to try to make money and, and stay at home. She realized this dream and started selling cut flowers at the local farmer's market in Charlottesville, the home of the University of Virginia. She's had a space there every Saturday for six years. It does have a fairly large population, and uh, the farmer's market is right downtown, so it's centrally located and, and fairly easy to access. So it gets quite a lot of traffic, um, probably, uh, you know, easily thousands of people um, every, every Saturday. Levitino's sister is a farmer, too, and was part of the inspiration for her book. She did it before I did and uh, was able to, you know, made it sound pretty good, <laughs> even though she was in Taos, where it's a lot harder to farm than it is in California. Why did you decide to write a book about this, about your journey and this major life shift to farming? Well, the main thing that kind of that got me started thinking about writing it was um, having being approached by women at the farmer's market who um, really were so impressed with what I was doing and were so drawn to it and would tell me, gosh, this is so great. I love what you're doing. Um, how did you get into it? And, and how can I do it? What 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 are some things that I could do to get started? And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's a really great compliment. And I'd love to help these people out. And um as I started doing research, and there's lots, you know, there's many resources now for women who want to get into farming, great organizations, you know, thanks to the internet, things are, are much more accessible. Um, but what I realized is there really isn't a book out there specifically about women farmers um, written from a woman's perspective. And so I thought, well, what did I 
want to know when I first started out that I'm not seeing in a lot of these books that I've checked out. And and so part of that was the step-by-step -step instructions for really basic things that I was scared to do at first, like um, building my own fence um, and, you know, running a chainsaw and changing the oil in the lawn tractor, things that were a little intimidating just because I'd never done them. But I thought, you know, it, they're not that hard once you once you actually do them. And with step-by-step -step instructions and pictures, that might ease some of the anxiety for people that are thinking about, um, especially women, that are thinking about starting their own uh, farm or even backyard garden or homestead. So that was, um, those are some of the motivations right there. What were the challenges? I, I imagine there were a lot, especially since you started from scratch. Yeah, there were there were lots of things. I, you know, I tend to when I got into it, I, I'm one of these people that tends to learn by trial and error. So I made a lot of mistakes, but um, it wasn't too terrible because I started small and just grew a little bit every year um, as I could pay for new things I bought new, you know, or, or used new equipment. I would I would do that, but I didn't get myself into debt. So that I think is a is a was a good thing for me. Um, I never kind of bit off more than I could chew at one time. Um, but I did, and there was quite a, you know, a learning curve. Uh, there's a great, well, I wouldn't call it a great story, but there's a story in the book about um, a time when my husband was out of town and uh, the donkeys, uh, part of the fence had been knocked down by a tree. And when I went out in the morning, the donkeys during the night has, had escaped. And so the whole story is about the great donkey escape and trying to locate and get the donkeys back home. So that was quite anxiety provoking and um, really drove home the lesson about how important fencing is, which I already knew, which is the bad part of the story, is that I knew, you know, that there were parts of the fence that probably needed more, you know, that I needed to look into and, and take or chainsaw some trees down. And so, but I let it go too long. So that's, um, that was one big mistake. Another mistake was um, letting the shots go too long between uh, giving my llamas their deworming medicine. It's, they're supposed to get it every get a shot every six weeks and I let it go a little bit too long and one of my llamas got this disease that they get out here called where worms basically eat their brain. They, they eat they get these worms from cropping the grass really close to the ground and the worms get up in their uh, into their mouth and then get into their brain. And we were able to save him. So he's still alive and he's doing well, but it was really scary and I, I still feel terribly guilty. So those were some some hard learned and, and kind of unnecessary, you know, if I had been paying more attention and been more diligent, neither of those things needed to happen. So hopefully people can look at my mistakes and go, oh, I don't want to be a bad farmer like she was um, and, and do a better job. <laughs> Can you describe your farm and give us an essence of it and how it works? Yeah, it's a very small farm, and and that's kind of what the book is addressing: are these, um, you know, acre, you know, one to two acre, or even even smaller pieces of land that women um, are able to to really make a living uh, cultivating. It does talk a little bit about bigger farm operations, but my farm itself, uh, we own twenty three acres, and we've got about ten of it as pasture. But the, the area that I farm is only about an acre and a half. Um, and then we have, we really don't have, you know, we don't raise livestock for food or um, really for any monetary purpose. We've got two llamas and two donkeys and they're guard animals. So they protect our, our garden from the deer, which are voracious out here. Um, and I've never had a deer problem because they are really great guard animals. And then we use their manure as well, which is wonderful for our compost and uh, fertilizing our garden. So... 
and also we have chickens for their eggs and um, our dogs and cats, of course. Uh, but that's about it as far as animals go. And the rest of it, I grow cut flowers to maintain the business. Um, that's pretty much my money crop. I sell at the farmer's market and to local florists and for events and to restaurants. And then I grow food for, for us and whatever surplus we have, I either sell it at the market or give it to neighbors. Um, and um, also grow some specialty crops for restaurants. Like they love the San Marzano tomatoes and special basils and things like that. What kind of flowers do you grow? Um, well, they're all seasonal. So, I mean, everything that I sell is grown right here on my farm. And um, so a, a wide spectrum, which I've um, every year I try new things, but um, always keeping in mind who my uh, my clientele is, because if they don't like it, then I'm not going to make any money off of it, which means I can't buy more flowers for, you know, seeds for next year. So it is definitely geared toward my market, um, even though I always try things that I just think are cool. Um, but right now, like I've got delphinium. I have two unheated um, plastic structures, which, you know, some people call them high tunnels. Some people call them hoop houses. Um, but uh, right now I've got in there delphiniums, uh, ranunculus, anemones. I've got sweet peas, which are starting to blossom. Um, and then outside, my tulips just finished. I've got Dutch iris, allium. The peonies are coming into bloom out here now. Um, so, yeah, a wide variety. And then as the summer goes on, you know, the more heat-loving crops come in, like the zinnias and the sunflowers and the rudbeckia and daisies and, and all of that stuff. So it's it's quite a wide variety. And, you know, the dahlias, which everybody loves in the fall. Um, and then, you know, more funky crops. Like and there's an Asclepius that has these green um, ball seed pods that people really like because it's just odd-looking and fun. So I'm, I'm always looking for something that's a little bit different that nobody else has. Going from a teacher in the city to farming is quite a big change. And what were the challenges along the way? And what and what advice would you give to others who are thinking about maybe doing the same thing? Yeah, it is a big leap. I think that's true. I think partly, you know, writing this book is sort of um, a, a tie back to my teaching days because it's, you know, I, I, it, my desire to sort of share information with people and, and help people do things is, is always um, still going strong. Um, and that's a big part of the book, too. I mentioned that the best way to learn things is to form a community with other people um, in your area that are that are farming or that have, have farmed and that do, you know, things that are similar to you that can help you and give you advice and that you you can just hang out with and have, you know, tell your stories to. Um, having a community is really, you know, the best, you know, the best resource you can have um, when you're a farmer, be, you know, especially if you're a little bit isolated, you really need to have those um, personal contacts to keep you going sometimes. Um, so it, yeah, the, the change was, was pretty big, um, you know, from going into, in, you know, into being inside all day long, um, and having my life ruled by bells to being pretty much in control of my time. Um, also from having a job where teaching, you know, you take a lot of stuff home, so you feel like you're never done, but with a farm, really, you're never done. I mean, anytime you sit down, you can think of 20 things that still need to be done, but you have to take a break sometime. Um, so. So those are two of the changes. And of course, the, the change getting away from being inside and being ruled by bells is wonderful. And I can go to the bathroom whenever I want, which I couldn't do when I was teaching. Um, 
So that's great too. Um, I miss the students a lot of the times, but um, the, a lot of it I can I could really do without. But you do have to be organized. So that was a good thing, a skill that I brought from teaching to having my own business is you really have to be organized. You have to have a plan. Um, you need to you know look forward to what's going to happen. Um, you need to evaluate how things worked and what you're you know what you're going to do better next time. And all of that you know applied to teaching as well as to running you know this small business. With drought conditions happening in so many states, and as a farmer, how do you view water and how do you conserve it on your farm? That's a great question. Yeah, I know. I mentioned that in in my book because um, uh, we grew up. I grew up. My family is from New Mexico, and you know, there's no water there. You know, if you want to have any sort of garden at all, you use gray water. You know, you you siphon off from your washing machine water, and and that's the only way that you can really um, have anything. You know, use water in your garden. Um, so out here, we have groundwater. Virginia is pretty lucky in terms of the amount of water it gets, but we usually I mean, we have a drought situation about every, you know, two years um, and, you know, people are told to conserve water. Of course, to me, because I'm from New Mexico, it always still looks green. Um, but I try to use, um, we have drip irrigation so that um, when I do use groundwater, we have a well, a deep well. Um, when I do use that water, that it goes directly where it needs to go to the plant roots. And um, it's just a very slow, deep watering once or twice a week if I have to use it. But a lot of times, like last year, we had a couple of months, about six weeks of drought. And I just, I watered inside my hoop houses where the which those are the more expensive crops. And I just let, let a lot of stuff outside die because I, I couldn't justify using the water. And I know a lot of people thought I was crazy, but I just, I really, feel strongly about um, water being such a valuable um, commodity that you've got to make choices and, um, you know, water your food plants and water your you know, the crops that are going to pay your bills. And then the rest, if you don't have, you know, if you don't really need it, you got to let it go. We have rain barrels that I use whenever I can. We've got about 100 gallons and we, you know, we get a lot of rain in the spring. So I've got quite a bit of water right now. Um, I want to get more rain barrels going, but yeah, and we have a pond. We put in a pond so that if we needed to, we could, it's creek fed. So it does get low, but it's never dried out. So that's water for our animals. We never have to worry about them having enough water. And it's also a great little ecosystem um, for the birds and the turtles and all kinds of fun things in, show up there, badgers and muskrats and blue herons. So it's a, it's a fun place to hang out and, and just watch nature. A pond is just a wonderful thing. I, you know, I, every year I, I just grow more and more fond of it and just think, how could I ever leave this place? I mean, there's just the, the story of the pond every year, these, you know, who comes back and who doesn't. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting. For other women wanting to transition into farming who don't own land or have any experience, how do you recommend they get into the field, so to speak? <laughs> In my book, there are several profiles of other women farmers, and that's one um, important aspect of this whole idea of, of farming is that there's not just one way to go about it. There's so many different things that you can farm, as well as so many different ways to go about it. And the first piece of advice that I would give um, anyone that wants to do it is to actually go and spend time on a farm. Um, if you can intern and you're interested in interning, I, um, I think that uh, the, the 
the intern situation um, has gotten much more regulated in terms of being able to find a position where, you know, you actually will fit in and, and there are better interview systems in place now. Um, but all of the women that I interviewed that did internships felt that they were really valuable. Um, and I think that's a great way to uh, just to understand what you're getting yourself into the day in and day out of farming and also to learn some valuable skills from seasoned farmers. Um, one of the interns that I interviewed in the book, you know, she learned how to um, process chickens, you know, kill and um, and butcher chickens. And, you know, it was a hard, it, it was hard for her at first, but it was a very valuable skill because she wanted to be a livestock farmer. So, you know, that's something to think about. Uh, definitely spend time on a farm. Um, also, if at all possible, you know, don't go into debt right away. Try to start small so that if you do end up not, you know, going through with farming, if it turns out to not be what you really want to do, if you can't handle being on your own so much or being isolated, um, if, if you're not making the money that you need, um, or if, if you meet someone and your, your plans change, at least you haven't um, gotten your, you know, if you start small, then you're probably able to, to, to walk away from it without losing too much. Um, also, if you start small and you make some mistakes, um, you can learn from them and just keep moving on and growing and not suffer too much from, from the mistakes if they're small. Do you have any help on your farm? It's just me, although my husband does work full time. He has an off farm job, so that is great. And my job is, you know, the, the second income for the house. Um, but I do rope him into doing things whenever I can. Um, when we first moved here, he did a lot of the um, of the chores that that I you know never even thought I would have to do, like driving the big tractor and chainsawing. And I never thought I would have to do that. But then he got busier and my business grew and I realized I am really going to be doing this. And so I, I got more serious and um, invested more into it. And realized he wasn't going to be able to help me. So I started learning to do all of the chores that he did. And I've thought about, you know, there's there's a point that you come to at any in any small farm when you you think, OK, I either have to hire someone or I have to decide, you know, where I'm going to focus and maybe back off a little bit because it's easy to overwhelm yourself. So I am just by myself. Um, I think I, you know, I could easily hire a part time person and that would probably be great but I'm just not sure that that's what I want to do right now. How successful have you been in this business? I mean, it's successful. It depends on how you define successful. I have a friend who's a mushroom farmer and he can't, you know, he thinks I make nothing. You know, he makes quite a bit of money. And I, I feel like, well, I, I don't, I'm not a kind of the kind of person that needs a lot. So I don't really, I don't feel like I'm lacking anything. Um, and it is, you know, I we have two incomes in my family, so I'm one of them and my husband is the other. So there's there's that as well. Um, if it's just you by yourself running a farm, then the income might be a little bit less and you might want to, you know, approach it a little bit differently than I have. But we talk about that in the book, too. There are several different stories of, farmer, of, of the way different um, farmers have gone about growing their business. Um, but it is, um, in terms of success, I mean, that's, uh, I think it's, it's pretty successful and every year it gets, it gets better and you, I have a broader customer base and more people call and want flowers and I have to turn people away. So, so it's going pretty well. What's a typical day like for you if there is such a thing in farming and, uh, why flowers? 
Um, well, it's just, um, you know, first thing in the morning, you go out and, you know, a big part of flower farming is um, keeping things really, really clean. So I wash a lot. I spend a lot of time washing buckets and um, making sure my tools are clean. And so you go out with your buckets of water and just, um, you know, figure basically... Um, most crops like to be picked for, you know, early in the morning after they've had a chance to rest overnight and, um, you know, absorb nutrients and, and water. So you go out first thing and and, um, and just harvest your flowers into buckets. I do have a cooler. Um, it gets really hot and humid here, so I, I need to have that cooler in order to, to keep my flowers fresh so they can get to the market looking good. Um, but it's just hand hand cutting, really. Um, and you hand cut them and then, you know, either bunch them or however you're going to sell them. Given the climate and climate change, if you believe in it. I do believe in climate change. And, and I think that um, that's one of the other motivations for this book is that, you know, most of the women farmers that are starting to farm now, um, many, there are women who've inherited big pieces of land and are running huge farms and they're doing a great job. And, but I, for me, having a small farm, it's very important to have a sustainable system. And that's one reason why we have the pond, we have bees, we have chickens, we, you know, everything, kind. we have a mushroom grove, we kind of try to keep everything in the system working together to be sustainable. And um, I think, you know, and that's the other thing with the water, trying to, you know, use as little groundwater as possible, um, use only organic uh, products, no sprays, no pesticides. Um, and a lot of women farmers um, approach farming this way. One of the reasons um, some women get into farming is, first of all, to start to start off just because they want to grow healthy food for their family in their little backyard kitchen garden. And then they have surplus and they think, oh, I'll go sell it at the farmer's market and everybody loves it. And then it just goes on from there. But it's all about um, providing healthy um organic, nutritional food for their family and then for their community. And the same thing is happening in the cities with the urban gardens and the community gardens, which are great places for educating, you know, city youth um, about where their food comes from um, and how wonderful it is to have the, this, how different too, this fresh food right from your garden is from what you get in a supermarket, say. Um, so definitely, I, I think that this, this small farming, this niche farming, this artisan farming is an important part of our culture and our economy because it allows for diversity that big agriculture can't provide because of the, the you know, the structure of big ag is to, you know, make a profit and produce lots and lots and lots of one or two crops. And, you know, that, that doesn't provide diversity. Um, and doesn't always, you know, lead to best practices in farming. Um, so all of these small farms are really making a change um, in, in terms of how they how they uh, work with the land and how they approach the idea of farming. Um, and just as to throw in a statistic, um, that uh, most women. Um, are, are working, like I said, on small farms and, you know, they aren't necessarily counted in the census. So even though there's a statistic that um, 15 um, that in the last uh, five years, the amount of agricultural products produced by women has grown by 15 percent to be um, um, about 13 billion dollars worth of agricultural product. I think that's really underestimated because um, the census just doesn't report all of these small farms or people that don't call themselves farmers or people that might be farming with a partner and that partner's male and his name gets put on the census. Um, 
So I think it's underestimated, but I think it's really valuable that that um, thirty percent of all farms are run by women, um, and that's a lot of food. Thirty percent. If you count all the small farms, I mean, the, the census says about 14%. But as I was looking through research and, you know, kind of trying to put together all the numbers for the, the community gardens and urban farming on, you know, on city lots and people that are just, that are bringing their products to market that aren't really, you know, considering themselves farmers, they call themselves growers, um, but they're producing food and they're feeding their community um, and school gardens. Um, they're, you know, they're providing food for their schools. They're teaching young children about, you know, how to grow things and how, how, how the, how soil works. And I mean, it's really, it's really wonderful. There currently is a movement of artists and farms and farmers markets and CSAs, community supported agriculture and niche farming. I think we're in an, an amazing time for farming. And I, you know, I don't think this could have happened without, you know, all of the previous generations of farmers and women farmers who kind of paved the way and, and did all this stuff without the, you know, the modernized equipment and the resources. I mean, we're so lucky to have libraries full of books and the internet, whereas, you know, women who are homesteading or farming in, in years past, they just had to go out there and figure it out. Um, so we're so lucky. Um, and this is just such an exciting time. Um, I think that there's just a, a regeneration of, um, of the idea of how important the land is and how we need to take care of it because we are the land. What about those of us women who want to farm uh, but just only have maybe an acre or less? Yeah, they're in the book that talks about how to make the most of small spaces um, and recommends there's a couple of great books that um, talk market gardening. There's a couple from Canada who have this one acre farm that's just a production farm. And there are some tips in my book about how to make the most of that small space, basically by being extremely efficient um, and, you know, using making things all the same length so that when you're putting down landscape fabric or using netting or whatever, everything's the same length. So it's interchangeable instead of like my farm where I'm always like where's the piece that should go here and you know everything's different links and it makes so much more sense to to do things that way and then you don't have to label and wonder where the short piece is and the long piece is because land is so expensive um, there's also leasing or renting pieces of land from people um, which is which is quite um, a good idea if you're just getting started and don't have a lot of money and don't aren't quite sure where this farming thing is going to go for you, renting or leasing land is a great way to to get started. Um, there are lots of people out there who've maybe inherited land or have family land that they don't want to farm, but they would love to see it farmed. Um, so uh, looking into that if the, in, in your area is, is a great way to maybe find a piece of land to farm. Community gardens are, are kind of cropping up more and more these days. If there's not one where you live, that might be something to get together with some people and say, is there a piece of land somewhere that we could ask if we could use and we could all, you know, Take, take a share of this and do the work and, and share the, the benefits. So there are ways to get started without um, necessarily making it this, this big commitment at first. And to me, all of that is farming. I know a lot of people like in, in big agriculture that maybe they don't agree with me. And I really respect big ag. We need big ag. It produces a lot of food for you know a lot of people, but we need little ag too. I mean, it's, they, you can't really, you need both. Working this farm all by yourself with all the different animals and crops and, and all the repairs you have to do and fencing especially, how'd you get it all done in one day? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. A lot, most of the time, I don't get it all done. <laughs> there's always something, and in my book, I talk about that. There's a whole chapter about physical and mental health, and how sometimes you you just have to take a you have to let go a little bit. And I've talked to other women farmers about you know about that as well. And it's true because there's there really is it's never done. And unless you let yourself stop, you're going to constantly be thinking about what else, you know, you should be out there doing this, you should be out there doing that. Why didn't that get done? Oh my gosh, if this doesn't get done, then this. And it's true. If you don't get your crops in, then they don't grow when they're supposed to. And then you don't, you know, get them to market and you don't make the money. So you can't do this. If you don't succession crop, you know, succession plant, then you're not going to have your, your crop two months down the road. Um, you know, usually for me, the thing that falls by the wayside, first and foremost, weeding. Weeding just, you know, if anything, if I have a list of things that to get done, weeding always goes to the bottom because I have to harvest, I have to plant, I have to deliver and market my product. So those are the things that happen first. Of course, how can I plant if there are weeds everywhere? So, you know, the weeding does get done, but it's always, you know, falls to, to the very end of the, of the list. So there are definitely weedy patches out in my garden right now um, that are quite embarrassing. <laughs> Since you've changed your lifestyle to farming and more sustainable living and, and foods, and have you and your husband noticed any physical and health changes? You know, I've, I've been very lucky that I'm, I'm a pretty healthy person. I, I don't get sick very often. I don't have a lot of physical issues, although as I'm getting older, I definitely, you know, this past year farm um, with the farm, I, I definitely hurt my shoulder. I, it was like a rotator cuff tear and then a little tear in my um, tricep. And that was from lifting, lifting those he heavy buckets of water full of flowers and setting them on counters or lifting them up above shoulder level. And um, so there were a couple months when I couldn't lift my arm above shoulder level. And um, so I, the winter, I really just took it easy and it's much better now. But you, you know, it really is important to, to pay attention to those um, to those little things that start to bother you and, and pick up on it right away so that you don't lose time. Because, um, you know, if I were to seriously injure myself, I, I would lose a whole season of business and that can be, you know, devastating. Um, but health-wise, most of the time, I mean, I feel really fortunate that, I mean, I'm outside most of the time. Um, I have access to great food. Another wonderful thing about um, live, ha being a farmer and having a community of farmers that you know and are friends with. I trade flowers for great food that I don't have. And, you know, I grow food for myself, of course. But, you know, I don't grow broccoli anymore because it's a pain and, and you know, it gets those little worms. And But my neighbor, you know, my neighbor at the market has amazing produce. So I just... I get produce from from them and they get flowers from me and it's it's really great. I trade for bread. I trade, you know, it's it's great. Uh, I trade for cheese, um for kombucha. I get all kinds of, you know, it's it's a wonderful system to be in if if you um are able to establish yourself uh with a community of farmers. You just uh, you're always going to have so much bounty. Um so that I think is very very healthy. I'm I'm really um fortunate in that way. And then also working outside, I think, is just great for, for you physically. So, We are just about out of time as someone who started a farm as a second career and a woman and, and a novice. What advice can you give for someone wanting to make a similar change in their life? If you have a desire and, and you have even the, the, the 
just the slightest means of being able to to grow things and maybe see if you can make that part of your part of your life and, and possibly part of your income it's definitely well worth it and it's and it you know feeds back into your community i think it's all about you know healthier communities and you know buy fresh, buy local, you know, know the people in your community, share advice. Um, and I think that's just, it's, it's healthy, a healthier way to live. If you know the people around you, you're much less likely to, you know, have strife and, and conflict because, you know, you know who they are and you, you know what they're going through. That was Audrey Levitino, author of Woman Powered Fawn, Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Thanks for listening. The Fusion Theater Project at Utah State University and Utah Public Radio are presenting Playing Shortly, short plays on the radio featuring new works by American playwrights performed on stage in front of a live audience. This week, we feature a play by R. Scott Zaborski titled A Thoroughfare of Freedom Beat. It's about Harvey and Carl, a couple of businessmen from New York City who are trying to figure out the important things in life while the rest of the world begins to crumble around them. You chose the wrong city to live in, my friend. Listen, New York is a beautiful place, but... We keep to ourselves. What's so bad about that? What's so bad about a New York where people open doors for each other, or make eye contact on the street, or say please, or thank you? Not gonna happen, my friend. Not gonna happen. Uh, finding someone to open the door for you in New York is a, like finding a beautiful girl from Jersey. It's just not gonna happen. We invite you to gather around the radio Sunday afternoon at 3 for Playing Shortly on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Nathan Gear, Utah State University mathematician who received the 2015 Faculty Early Career Development Career Award granted by the National Science Foundation. This is the NSF's top grant program for early career development of junior faculty and is given in recognition of demonstrated excellence in research, teaching, and integration of education and research. UPR congratulates Nathan Gear for his honor of the 2015 Early Career Development Career Award. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. And I am Susie Montgomery. Recreational marijuana became legal in the state of Colorado for those 21 and older in 2014. Washington and other states are preparing to follow suit. Today on the program, we explore the effects, from a theological perspective, that marijuana policies have had on American society. I'm Reverend Dr. Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite and I'm Professor of Theology and Immediate Past President of Chicago Theological Seminary. An ordained minister of the United Church of Christ since 1974, she is also the author and editor of numerous books and has worked on two different translations of the Bible. Thistlewaite is currently working in a new area she calls public theology and on a new book on human nature and public policy. She writes a weekly column for the Washington Post called On Faith in the online section. I grew up in the New York City area, went to college in Massachusetts. I did my 
MDiv and my PhD at Duke University. Taught a lot of places before I came to Chicago Theological Seminary. I'm from the East Coast, and my husband's from the East Coast. So we were uh, in Washington, D.C., and then in Boston, and then I got recruited to CTS about 25 years ago. And my husband's a doctor. He works at the University of Chicago as a surgeon. And um, we've been very happy in Chicago. And I really like Chicago Theological Seminary. They have greatly encouraged me to go out on these kinds of theological limbs and uh, really challenge uh, some of the accepted bromides of our culture, of our religious frameworks, and uh, it's been very productive for me. Violence and war and violence against women are areas she has particularly done a lot of work in. In both a macro and a micro sense, that is interpersonal violence, as well as um, the way in which women and children now are primary victims of war. But I think that the way in which our culture replicates violence, and rather a lot of the time than uh, Christianity being the voice of conscience to interrupt violence and to um, try to mediate and find more peaceful solutions, more just solutions, you have a version of religion that is a violence accelerator. So I spend a lot of time trying to point out places where I think our cultural life is being incited um, to be more violent than it needs to be, and that better social policy influenced by conscience can um, move us in a better direction. Reverend Thistlewaite recently wrote an essay titled Marijuana, a Theology, published in the March 4th edition of the Huffington Post. In the article, she explains the social problem of marijuana and how marijuana policies have greatly contributed to racism and prison overcrowding. Sherry recently talked to Reverend Thistlewaite about the article and her perspective on the U.S. policies that she says have contributed to racism and high incarceration rates. As I said in the article, people tend to look at what you put in your you know, body, uh, marijuana as an example, um, as a, just an individual problem. But in truth, it's a social problem, and we want to think about the social body and what's good for the social body. And the policy on uh, marijuana, which is the so-called war on drugs part of it, began in the Nixon administration, has been drastically racist, um, as well as making us among the leading nations in the world. We incarcerate more people than China. Uh, so uh, um, this is this is a ridiculous way to um, to run a society. Why aren't we trying to rehabilitate people? Why are we instead stuffing our prisons? And a very distressing aspect of the prison system, of course, is the privatization of prisons. Uh, you should never make a profit off of incarcerating people because then there's an incentive to keep them incarcerated or to get them incarcerated. Um, but, you know, we have 5% of the world's population. We have almost 25% of its prison population. And the marijuana policy is a big part of that. Uh, it's just a feeder system for the jails and particularly a feeder system of black men into the jails. 
black men are more than six times as likely as white men to be incarcerated for the same marijuana offense. That's a statistic from the Pew Research Center. And uh, another really, really good resource for those of your listeners who want to go further is an ACLU report, The War on Marijuana and in Black and White. Let me say that again. The War on Marijuana in Black and White. And it's available on ACLU.org. And it is very comprehensive in documenting how much wasted time and money we have spent on this fruitless drug war that instead we could use on education and rehabilitation. Have you looked at the incarceration rates for Hispanics? Oh, yeah, that's, yes, yes, that's very um, much a part of this report as well. And uh, the Hispanics are gaining um, on the African-American population in relationship to rates of incarceration. Men make up 90% of the prison and local jail population, and they have an imprison rate 14 times higher than the rate for women. And these men are young. Incarceration rates are highest for those in their 20s and early 30s. Stepping back from such high rates of incarceration, I mean, people who are incarcerated end up having very poor health outcomes, for example, after that. So then the costs don't go away. They get transferred to another part of the system. So I think we've got to find a healthier way to approach this. Marijuana arrests continue to soar, despite changing attitudes. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's annual Uniform Crime Report, an estimated 749,824 arrests were made nationwide for marijuana, more than 87% of which were for possession in 2013. And marijuana arrests accounted for nearly half of all drug arrests in 2012. It's staggering, the number of uh, marijuana arrests. Marijuana use is roughly equal among blacks and whites, and yet blacks are 3.73 times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. How do you feel about medical marijuana and legalizing medical marijuana? Oh, I think this is a very good idea. I mean, I was looking, after you asked me to be on this interview, at an article on research on marijuana for PTSD. And there's been a very long-delayed study of uh, people looking, researchers wanting to look at a treatment for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the idea that, I mean, this is another use of medical marijuana beyond uh, that for cancer and um, uses in that vein. But the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which supports medical research and legalization of marijuana, has been trying for 22 years to try to develop uh, marijuana drug research and to see if there are some uses that can be helpful to people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think you uh, listeners probably uh, know also about the idea that uh, marijuana, in the opinion of some parents, has been helpful to uh, children who have epilepsy. So why? Uh, Now, you know, you want to, if you're going to think about these things in a theological sense, um, one of the things that, why is this, is our drug policy driven by this kind of hysterical moralizing? You know, 
and uh, other countries around the world look at us and they look at our prison population, they look at our attitude towards drugs and don't understand it. But I think that looking at it in the history of theology, it's very akin to the 19th century uh, social purity movements. The uh, temperance movement might be a terminology that people would be more familiar with. I'm actually teaching a class now that covers some of this area. And so the idea was that, you know, right, we are the, America's the kingdom on the hill, the new Jerusalem. We're going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. So we have to be pure. And so legalizing alcohol was impure. So that led to prohibition. And what a disaster that was for uh, criminality in this country and finally was repealed. Well, we're beginning again to see some common sense coming in to our drug policy and we are moving away from this hysterical moralizing. But it's taken a while and um, it's just ruined so many lives and it has cost so much money. And, you know, money that I want to repeat could be far better spent on treatment and education. So, you know, it's, it's got its roots in this kind of idea that the U.S. is God's chosen people and that comes from the kind of Puritan theologies that helped found the country in, you know, in really kind of primary cultural ways. So I think we've got to recognize that morality is more often related to common sense and finding in a particularly religiously pluralistic society as the one we live in now, you've got to come to a kind of common sense approach. But uh, replaying prohibition in the drug war has been disastrous financially, culturally, and I think criminally. Some reports suggest that marijuana is a, a gateway drug and new brain studies are coming out more and more these days on the effects of marijuana on the developing brain. And How do you feel about it in that sense? I am advocating not that people use marijuana. I quote the Apostle Paul in terms of, you know, your body is a temple and uh, you don't want to mistreat it. I think that any stimulant, any depressant, and alcohol is now legal, and uh, some people even think a glass of red wine a day is good for your heart. A little bit of moderation is probably okay. But I think what you want to do is try to start taking the money out of it. It does say in scripture, money is the root of all evil. And I think that's a very wise statement because you can't make incarceration profitable. You should not make the drug industry profitable. Now, I will say I was just in Colorado. Um, we have a second home in Colorado and we were out there for spring break and um, in January, Colorado, it said in the local paper, had collected $2 million in taxes on the sale of legal marijuana. So we have perhaps relocated the economic factor in marijuana. Um, and I would think not for the highest purposes of the common good, but perhaps because states are 
looking for revenue, you're going to see more legalization of marijuana. That's just going to be economically driven. Um, but I think that what we need to lobby for now is to get some of those funds. You'll never get all of those funds, but some of those funds diverted to education and treatment. Because there are some people who can't handle stimulants or who, or who can't handle depressants. People become alcoholics. So uh, I think that that's where we could put some social energy and getting reducing the prison population as well because these will not be criminal offenses then uh, will help enormously. You have generation of people who um, have been incarcerated at incredibly high rates um, amongst racial ethnic minorities, particularly, as I said, men. Um, and this is, this is very bad. It's very bad for families. It's very bad for children. And it just has to stop. There are some pockets in the U.S. where economies in, in some rural areas have, have been consumed by the marijuana industry. And how can we address the issue, this issue, and the issue of arresting so many people where the legal line is often blurred? Well, we are in a period, broadly speaking, of economic disarray in the country. And you've got, you know, low-wage jobs and you've got very high-end technical jobs. And in between, as people have routinely said, the good jobs in the middle have gone away. So these are connected to larger problems. Marijuana policy is not going to fix that. But I think that we can stop the most egregious effects of this locking people up for nonviolent marijuana uh, use and divert those funds to education and treatment. And I think that's the way we need to go. But I think we've got miles to go. I think that the takeaway from this is this has been an extraordinarily racist policy. And I think the move to decriminalize and legalize marijuana is a step forward in terms of more racial justice. We're a racist society. That should be self-evident. A new state of Utah law is now allowing parents of children with severe epilepsy to obtain a marijuana extract they say helps with seizures. Sherry Quinn, Science Questions. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Hope you'll join us on Monday. We're going to be talking with a filmmaker. His new documentary is called The True Cost, uh, the hidden costs of the global fashion industry. We'll look at the problems. We'll also look at solutions. That's coming up, The True Cost, on Access Utah on Monday. Hope you join us. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about a mass grave found in Nephi, Utah, and how archaeology can provide a voice for the dead. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. 
we are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. In 2006, while digging the foundation for a new house in the central Utah town of Nephi, construction workers uncovered human bones. In fact, seven Native American skeletons were discovered piled in what could only be described as a mass grave. Who were these people? State archaeologists were called in to map the site and carefully excavate the remains. Gunshot wounds were found in the skulls of several of the skeletons, and one, the skeleton of a young boy, showed a gunshot wound through his upper leg. Analysis of the remains revealed they were all males, ranging in age from 10 to 35, and all in good health until their deaths. So what happened to them? Historical records from 1853 shed some light on this mystery. That summer, the so-called Walker War erupted, and hostilities between Mormons and Utah's native people intensified into a series of tit-for-tat killings. Ute leader Wakara directed raids on Mormon settlements in retaliation for their encroachment on native lands, and the settlers responded in kind. On October 2, 1853, a group of Utes, or possibly Goshutes, came to the fort at Nephi. The official record states that the town leaders wanted to question them about the recent deaths of four men from Nantai, but that the Indians showed fight and that a skirmish ensued. By the end of the day, seven Native Americans were dead and their bodies thrown into a mass grave. But forensic evidence reveals that these men did not die in any skirmish, but were instead coldly executed. The trajectories of the gunshot wounds indicate that they were shot in the back of the head, possibly while on their knees. Personal diary entries written by two women who witnessed the event confirm the forensic analysis. This incident of the Walker War and the grave's discovery 153 years later shows how the historic record can be contradicted by scientific evidence and how archaeology can allow victims to tell their story. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Ronald Rood. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This week on This American Life, let's say you had a superpower. Maybe you can fly. Would you fight crime? Work for world peace? If I could fly, the first thing I would do is fly into the bar, check out what's going on there, fly back home, attach my baby to me and fly to a doctor's appointment at 11.30. Then I think I would fly to Atlantic City. Superpowers, this week. Tune in Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay tuned for Zorba Pastor on your health coming up next. Time now, 10 o'clock.